in Christ City. If you have your Bible or Bible app, I invite you to open it to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, 1 to 6 is where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. Let me read it for us. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would be lifted high as we sit here under your word. Father, we ask that you would speak to us and stir in our hearts an attitude of gratitude an attitude of praise, Lord, where we give you all the glory for the joy that you have brought us. I pray in your son's name. Amen. Each year, there are certain Christmas traditions that I look forward to. Eating appetizers on Christmas Eve, running downstairs on Christmas morning to open up stockings, reading the Christmas story as a family. But maybe one of my favorite Christmas traditions is watching Lord of the Rings. Now, even if I have to watch that movie on surround sound, which you might think is actually a good thing, but it's not, when the surround sound is coming from your wife, who quickly interjects in the dialogue before their authors and actors actually give their lines, one does not simply walk into Mordor. One does not simply walk into Mordor. I am no man. I am no man. Despite that, I love those movies. They make me feel something. I can hear the music in my mind. I can picture the world. And I think, though, the main reason I love those movies is because of something called eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. It's a strange word. It's actually a word Tolkien, the author, made up. Uh, I'll let him describe the word. He says this, I coined the word eucatastrophe. It is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. It perceives that this indeed is how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. The good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. It denies universal final defeat and insofar giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the fairy tale world. You catastrophe. It's that sudden moment of jubilee, that expression of great joy because unexpected triumph has broken in. 
It's that moment you feel that this is the way things are supposed to be. It's how I feel when I watch Lord of the Rings. And it's that message of eucatastrophe, of sudden and unexpected joy that Isaiah actually brings in chapter 12. There's three aspects of joy I want to look at this morning. The cause of joy, the response of joy, and the time of joy. First, consider the cause of joy. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 12 again. It says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. To best understand what moves Isaiah's listeners out of despair and into delight, it's helpful to know a little bit about the situation in which they find themselves. At the time of Isaiah's message, the kingdom of Israel is split into two. You have the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation called Judah. It's to Judah that Isaiah writes. And the Jewish people, you see, are no longer the dominant force that they were. There's a new superpower on the block, namely Assyria. And Assyria wants to take over the world. And so the northern nation comes up with a plan. The northern nation decides that they will form an alliance with Syria. And this Israel-Syria alliance will try to take on Assyria. Except Israel and Syria know that they're not strong enough. And so what they decide to do is actually invite Judah to join their alliance. And so Judah has a dilemma. Will they join the alliance except what happens then if they lose? Surely Assyria will not deal kindly with them. And so instead, what Judah decides to do is actually try and befriend Assyria. They try to join the superpower, except it's less of a friendship and more of self-enslavement. They essentially decide to pay Assyria everything they own just to stay alive. It's at this moment that Isaiah then shows up to Judah and asks, What are you doing? What are you doing? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the God who saved you out of Egypt? Have you forgotten the God who brought you through the Red Sea? Have you forgotten the God who led you by safety in the wilderness? Have you forgotten the God who brought you to the promised land and defeated all your enemies around you? Have you forgotten your God, Judah? It's because of Israel's lack of faith that Isaiah begins his book this way. Isaiah 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nature, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And it's because Judah has forsaken their God that Isaiah then begins to pronounce judgment. And ultimately, that judgment would lead to exile, to leaving their homeland. And so over and over we hear this refrain, Isaiah 5, verse 25, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out 
still. Isaiah 9.12, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Isaiah 9.17, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Isaiah 9.21, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Isaiah 10.4, for all this his anger, anger has not turned away and he has his hand stretched out still. And so his anger is still stretched out. And then we come to Isaiah chapter 12 and we read in verse 1, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. What causes sorrow to turn into joy? What causes pain to turn into comfort? What causes anger to turn into salvation? Well, notice what's not there in the text. There's no mention of obedience, There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of trying harder. This is not Judah getting their act together, and so God decides to show mercy. No. What does it say? All it says is that though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Though he was angry, his anger turned away. God and God alone is the cause of this joy. God is the reason his anger turned away. That's why Isaiah has to start verse 2 with, Behold, it's his way of saying, Your eyes have not deceived you. This is not some trick. Yes, you won't be able to believe it, but behold, it's real. The God of anger has become the God of salvation. Anger has turned into mercy and grace. Do you see, are you beginning to see that this is our story? That though we have forsaken God, though we have begun to put our trust, our hope, our faith in things other than God, in our spouse, in relationships, in our finances, in our kids, in a vaccine, though we have forsaken our God and though he deserves to be angry with us, his anger turned away. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Joy is not your own doing. Ultimate, the greatest, deepest joy that we long for, it is the gift and work of God. Secondly then, what is the response of joy? You see, when we are impacted, when when we've truly been impacted by grace and joy has been given to us, that joy is intended to move outward. It's supposed to go external. 
And so we read that in verses 3 to 6. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. There's two responses to joy that I see here. I actually see three, but the sermon can only be 30 minutes, not 50 minutes. And so while it pains me, I'm going to give you two responses to joy that we see. The first one is shouting. It's shouting. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Shout! And sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Now, I understand that that might seem crazy to you. It's something them crazies do, right? Shouting in church. But I bet that while you may have not given expression to it, it's something you felt. I wonder, has there ever been that moment when you've been overwhelmed by joy? When your brain is suddenly flooded with dopamine and in a moment of despair, hope arrives out of nowhere. And all you want to do, all you feel like you can do is let air explode out of your vocal cords. Hear the good news, Christ City. Though you were in exile, you are now free. Though you were enslaved to sin, you are now free. Free in Christ. Though we deserved wrath and hell and the anger of the Lord should have been upon us, he chose to save us by his grace. Though the serpent held us in his bonds and wanted to destroy us, our Savior came and crushed the serpent's head. Come on! Yes, that is the response that we need bursting forth our lips, a volcano of praise to our God, shout in response to the joy given you by God's grace. We see shouting, but then we also see singing. Three times we hear about singing or song. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. Verse 2, Five, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Verse 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I think that while we could do better at shouting as a church, I actually think we do well at singing. I think whether we would express it or not, we realize that sometimes melodic poetry does a better job of expressing our delight than prose does. Great truths accompanied by great tunes give glory to a great God. Here's the problem, though. And if I can be honest with you, that's not how I always feel. It's not. Joy 
shouting, singing is not what I always want to do. Instead, actually, probably more often than I would like to admit it recently, I feel anger. I feel sorrow. I feel sadness. I feel hopelessness. This past Monday, many of you tuned in as our health officials announced that our gathering restrictions would be extended up to, onto, and beyond Christmas. And that was hard to hear. It's hard to hear that there would be no big family dinners. It's hard to hear that we won't be going home for Christmas. It's hard to hear that there would be no opening up of presents with grandma and grandpa. It's hard to hear that actually my favorite favorite Christmas tradition, candlelit service on Christmas Eve would have to be canceled. And so my question, what joy? What joy? What do I do then? I think the answer that our text gives us is you actually have to cultivate joy. You cultivate joy. You see, while joy is planted in you, while God has done a work that guarantees your ability for joy, that seedling of joy needs water. It needs the warmth of the sun. It needs to grow. And the way that happens is often not alone. It's not alone. We might miss this in our English translations unless we actually look at the footnotes. But verses 1 and 2 are actually in the singular tense. That word you is singular. Verse 12, verse 1 says, you singular will say in that day. Verse 2, we hear of my salvation. He is my God. He is my strength, my song. But then suddenly something shifts in verse 3. In verse 3, the language turns to plural. It's you, plural, will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you, plural, will say in that day. And you, plural, will shout. And you, plural, will sing. This is what that means. When I'm sitting on my chair or on my couch with my arms crossed, listening to the preacher's words, and I'm thinking, that's not true. Or at least that's not true for me. In that moment, I need you to shout. I need you to say yes and amen. I need to be reminded that our God is a steadfast God and that he is acting steadfastly in your life. In those moments when I'm standing with my hands in my pocket, lips shut, not wanting to sing, not believing that our God is a good and gracious and loving God. I need you to sing. I need to hear your song crash on my ears like a wave. I need you to say, yes, Daniel, remember, this is your God. This is who he is. Martin Luther, one of the great Christian reformers in the 16th century, often battled and fought with great depression. But he always felt like he had one weapon against despair, one weapon against the Satan's lies. And it was singing. It was singing. He would often say to his friends, come, come. 
Come, let us sing a song and drive away the devil. Let us sing a song and drive away the devil. We fight and we sing for each other's joy. Now, I realize that is a hard thing to do right now in the midst of this pandemic. It's hard when we can't be gathered together, sitting amongst each other. But so we have to find creative ways of fighting for each other. We have to call each other. We have to pray for each other. We need to actually physically care for the practical needs of one another. We need to find ways of reminding each other of who our God is. Because when God saves, he saves for the sake of your joy, and he also saves for the sake of the joy of those around you. Lastly, the time of joy. When does this actually happen? When does this happen? When does joy come? Twice in our text, we hear about that day, that time of salvation. Verse 1, you will say in that day. Verse 4, you will say in that day. My question is, what is that day? Well, we actually hear those same two words, that day, back in chapter 11. And it's that day described in chapter 11 that Isaiah has in mind here. Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, In that day, listen, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. He's bringing us back from exile. He's bringing the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. That day, that day of great salvation, Isaiah says, is the day when God brings his people back from exile. There's just one problem, and it's verse 6. Verse 6 says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. No one said that. No one felt that. Even after the Jews returned to Jerusalem, no one said, great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see, when God saved Israel out of Egypt, he led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. When God gave Israel the tabernacle, he filled it with his presence. His glory shone. It was bright, so much so that when Moses would meet with God in the tabernacle, his face would come out radiating. When Israel built the temple. We hear about the glory of the Lord coming down like fire. His glory was visibly, tangibly felt. It, it filled the temple. Except now Israel has gone into exile. And their temple, the place where they could manifestingly see the glory of the Lord, was gone. And so no big deal, right? They come back from exile and they rebuild the temple. 
but they never experience the glory of the Lord again. There's no shining, no fire, no filling with power and might and majesty. And so the question was, is our God really among us? Has he actually still just forsaken us? Where is our saving God? For 600 years, the glory of the Lord was nowhere to be seen. Until that night outside of Bethlehem, until that night where we read in Luke 2, verses 8 to 14, listen to this, and in the same region where shepherds outside in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord appeared, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great, what? Joy. It's joy that will be for all the peoples. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, they're singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Come on! See what that means? It means that Christmas is the fulfillment of Isaiah 12. The birth of Jesus is the eucatastrophe, that sudden and unexpected event we are all longing for. It's at Christmas time that we feel and realize that all will be made right again. It's the birth of Jesus that turns God's wrath away. It's the birth of Jesus where God begins to save us. It's the birth of Jesus when we're given a song and a shout in our lips. It's the birth of Jesus when God begins to dwell with us in our midst. And it's the birth of Jesus when God begins to fix all that is wrong and broken in this world and in me. But this is not the last good catastrophe. You see, Jesus would complete what he began by dying. By dying. And though that seemed like the worst tragedy of all, it was the best news ever. Because three days later, our Savior rose from the death, defeating death and sin itself, so that we might be forgiven. Let me end like this. I actually have one objection to Tolkien's definition. There's one thing I take issue with. Let me read it for you. He says, The good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. That's the phrase I take issue with. Never to be counted on to recur. See, we actually can expect it again. I think that's why we actually love it. That's why it makes us feel something, because though the world might look dim at one moment, we know that God can come and break in once again. 
He can do the unexpected. He can fix it. See, at Christmas, in this Advent season, this season of waiting and preparation, as we get to look forward to celebrating our Savior's birth, Jesus' birth, the coming of God as a child, actually prepares us for the last Advent. There's one more coming. It's Jesus' second coming. And it's when he comes again that we will be taken into everlasting life, be given everlasting joy, and when we will see our Savior face to face, it's when we'll sing for all eternity without any sorrow or despair. Christmas is a story about God doing the unexpected. It's a story about unexpected joy, and it gets us ready. It helps us to realize that we can again expect unexpected joy. So, sing and shout.